Chapter 6 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jane Bennett. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter 6 Discovery of Grand Entrance to the Palace of Kuyunjik of the name of Sennacherib in the inscriptions, the records of that king in the inscriptions on the bulls, an abridged translation of them, name of Hezekiah, account of Sennacherib's wars with the Jews, Dr. Hinks and Colonel Rawlinson, the names of Sargon and Shalmaneser, discovery of sculptures at Kuyunjik representing the siege of Lakish, description of the sculptures, discovery of clay seals, of signets of Egyptian and Assyrian kings, cartouche of Sabaco, name of Esarhaddon, confirmation of historical records of the Bible, royal cylinder of Sennacherib. During the month of December, several discoveries of the greatest interest and importance were made, both at Kuyungjik and Nimrod. I will first describe the results of the excavations in the ruins opposite Mosul. I must remind the reader that shortly before my departure for Europe in 1848, the forepart of a human-headed bull of colossal dimensions had been uncovered on the east side of the Kuyungjik Palace. This sculpture then appeared to form one side of an entrance or doorway, and it is so placed in the plan of the ruins accompanying my former work. The excavations had, however, been abandoned before any attempt could be made to ascertain the fact. On my return, I had directed the workmen to dig out the opposite sculpture. A tunnel, nearly a hundred feet in length, was accordingly opened at right angles to the bull first discovered, but without coming upon any other remains than a pavement of square limestone slabs, which stretched without interruption as far as the excavation was carried. I consequently discontinued the cutting, as it was evident that no entrance could be of so great a width, and as there were not even traces of building in that direction. The workmen having been then ordered to uncover the bull, which was still partly buried in the rubbish, it was found that adjoining it were other sculptures, and that it formed part of an exterior façade. The upper half of the next slab had been destroyed, but the lower still remained, and enabled me to restore the figure of the Assyrian Hercules strangling the lion. Similar to that discovered between the bulls in the Propylia of Corsabad, and now in the Louvre, the hinder part of the animal was still preserved. Its claws grasped the huge limbs of the giant, who lashed it with the serpent-headed scourge. The legs, feet, and drapery of the god were in the boldest relief, and designed with great truth and vigour. Beyond this figure, in the same line, was a second bull. The façade then opened into a wide portal, guarded by a pair of winged bulls twenty feet long, and probably, when entire, more than twenty feet high. Forming the angle between them and the outer bulls were gigantic winged figures in low relief, and flanking them were two smaller figures, one above the other. Beyond this entrance was a group similar to and corresponding with that on the opposite side, also leading to a smaller entrance into the palace, 
and to a wall of sculptured slabs. But here all traces of building and sculpture ceased, and we found ourselves near the edge of the water-worn ravine. Thus a façade of the southeast side of the palace, forming apparently the grand entrance to the edifice, had been discovered. Ten colossal bulls with six human figures of gigantic proportions were here grouped together, and the length of the whole, without including the sculpture walls continued beyond the smaller entrances, was 180 feet. They had represented the conquest of a district, probably part of Babylonia, watered by a broad river and wooded with palms, spearmen on foot in combat with Assyrian horsemen, castles besieged, long lines of prisoners, and beasts of burden carrying away the spoil. Among various animals brought as tribute to the conquerors could be distinguished a lion led by a chain. The bulls, as I have already observed, were all more or less injured. The same convulsion of nature, for I can scarcely attribute to any human violence the overthrow of these great masses, had shattered some of them into pieces and scattered the fragments amongst the ruins. Fortunately, however, the lower parts of all, and consequently the inscriptions, had been more or less preserved. To this fact we owe the recovery of some of the most precious records with which the monuments of the ancient world have rewarded the labours of the antiquary. On the great bulls forming the centre portal of the grand entrance was one continuous inscription, injured in parts, but still so far preserved as to be legible almost throughout. It contained 152 lines. On the four bulls of the façade were two inscriptions, one inscription being carried over each pair, and the two being of precisely the same import. These two distinct records contain the annals of six years of the reign of Sennacherib, besides numerous particulars connected with the religion of the Assyrians, their gods, their temples, and the erection of their palaces, all of the highest interest and importance. In my first work, I pointed out the evidence, irrespective of the inscriptions, which led me to identify the builder of the great palace of Kuyunchik with Sennacherib. Dr. Hinks, in a memoir on the inscriptions of Korsabad, read in June 1849, but published in the Transactions of the Royal Irish Academy in 1850, was the first to detect the name of this king in the group of arrow-headed characters at the commencement of nearly all the inscriptions, and occurring on all the inscribed bricks from the ruins of this edifice. Subsequent discoveries confirmed this identification, but it was not until August 1851 that the mention of any actual event recorded in the Bible and in ancient profane history was detected on the monuments, thus removing all further doubt as to the king who had raised them. Shortly after my return to England, my copies of these inscriptions having been seen by Colonel Rawlinson, he announced in the Athenaeum of the 23rd of August 1851 that he had found in them notices of the reign of Sennacherib, which placed beyond the reach of dispute his historic identity, and he gave a recapitulation of the principal events recorded on the monuments, 
the greater part of which are known to us through history, either sacred or profane. These inscriptions have since been examined by Dr. Hinks and translated by him independently of Colonel Rawlinson. He has kindly assisted me in giving the following abridgment of their contents. The inscriptions begin with the name and titles of Sennacherib. It is to be remarked that he does not style himself king, or rather high priest of Babylon, as his father had done in the latter part of his reign, from which it may be inferred that at the time of engraving the record, he was not the immediate sovereign of that city, although its chief may have paid tribute to him, and no doubt acknowledged his supremacy. He calls himself the subduer of kings from the upper sea of the setting sun, the Mediterranean, to the lower sea of the rising sun, the Persian Gulf. In the first year of his reign, he defeated Merodach Baladan, a name with which we are familiar, for it is this king who is mentioned in the Old Testament as sending letters and a present to Hezekiah when the Jewish monarch in his pride showed the ambassadors the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the houses of his armour and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominions that Hezekiah showed them not an act of vain boasting which led to the reproof of the prophet Isaiah and to his foretelling that all its wealth, together with the descendants of its owner, should be carried away as spoil to the very city from which these ambassadors came. Merodach Baladan is called King of Kardunias, a city and country frequently mentioned in the Assyrian inscriptions and comprising the southernmost part of Mesopotamia, near the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates, together with the districts watered by those two rivers, to the borders of Susiana. This king, with the help of his Susianian allies, had recently recovered Babylon, from which Sargon, Sennacherib's father, had expelled him in the twelfth year of his reign. The battle appears to have been fought considerably to the north of that city. The result was that Sennacherib totally defeated Merodach Baladan, who fled to save his life, leaving behind him his chariots, wagons, horses, mares, asses, camels, and riding horses with their trappings for war. The victorious king then advanced to Babylon, where he plundered the palace, carrying off a vast treasure of gold, silver, vessels of gold and silver, precious stones, men and women servants, and a variety of objects which cannot yet be satisfactorily determined. No less than 79 cities, or fortresses, all the castles of the Chaldeans, and 820 small towns, or villages, dependent upon them, were taken and spoiled by the Assyrian army and the great wandering tribes that dwelt around the cities of Mesopotamia. The Syrians, Aramaeans and Chaldeans, and etc., were brought under subjection. Sennacherib, having made Baleb one of his own officers, sovereign of the conquered provinces, 
proceeded to subdue the powerful tribes who border on the Euphrates and Tigris, and amongst them the Hagarains and the Nabatheans. From these wandering people, he declares that he carried off to Assyria, probably colonising with them, as was the custom, new-built towns and villages, 208,000 men, women and children, together with 7,200 horses and mares, 11,063 asses, 5,230 camels, 120,100 oxen, and 800,500 sheep. It is remarkable that the camels should bear so small a proportion to the oxen and asses in this enumeration of the spoil. Amongst the Bedouin tribes who now inhabit the same country, the camels would be far more numerous. It is interesting to find that in those days, as at a later period, there was both a nomad and stationary population in northern Arabia. In the same year, Sennacherib received a great tribute from the conqueror Karara and subdued the people of Kerimi, whom he declares to have been long rebellious, neither people can as yet be identified, rebuilding or consecrating the city of the latter and sacrificing on the occasion for its dedication to the gods of Assyria one ox, ten sheep, ten goats or lambs, and twenty other animals. In the second year of his reign, Sennacherib appears to have turned his arms to the north of Nineveh, having reduced in his first year the southern country to obedience. By the help of Ashur, he says, he went to Bishi and Yashu Birablai, both names of doubtful reading and not identified, who had long been rebellious to the kings, his fathers. He took Beth Kilimzak, their principal city, and carried away their men, small and great, horses, mares, asses, oxen and sheep. The people of Bishi and Yasubirablai, who had fled from his servants, he brought down from the mountains and placed them under one of his eunuchs, the governor of the city of Arapaka. He made tablets and wrote on them the laws, or tribute, imposed upon the conquered and set them up in the city. He took permanent possession of the country of Illibai, Luristan, and Isbabara. Its king, after being defeated, fled, leaving the cities of Marabishti and Akudu, the royal residences, with 34 principal towns and villages not to be counted, to be destroyed by the Assyrians, who carried away a large amount of captives and cattle. Beth Barua, the city itself and its dependencies, Sennacherib separated from Ilibai and added to his immediate dominions. The city of Ilbinzash he appointed to be the chief city in this district. He abolished its former name, called it Kar Sanakiba i.e. the city of Sennacherib, and placed in it a new people, annexing it to the government of Karka, which must have been in the neighbourhood of Holwan, commanding the pass through Mount Zagros. In the third year of his reign, Sennacherib appears to have overrun with his enemies the whole of Syria. He probably crossed the Euphrates above Carchemish, at or near the ford of Thapsacus, and marched to the sea coast, 
over the northern spur of Mount Lebanon. The Syrians are called by their familiar biblical name of Hittites. The Kati, or Keta, by which they were also known to the Egyptians. The first opposition he appears to have received was from Luli, or Lulia, king of Sidon, who had withheld his homage, but who was soon compelled to fly from Tyre to Yaban in the middle of the sea. Dr. Hinks identifies this country with the island of Crete, or some part of the southern coast of Asia Minor, and with the Yavan of the Old Testament, the country of the Ionians or Greeks, an identification which I believe to be correct. This very Phoenician king is mentioned by Josephus, quoting from Ananda, under the name of Elulaeus, as warring with Shalmaneser, a predecessor of Sennacherib. He appears not to have been completely subdued before this, but only to have paid homage or tribute to the Assyrian monarchs. Sennacherib placed a person whose name is doubtful, Colonel Rawlinson reads it, Tubal, upon the throne of Luli and appointed his annual tribute. All the kings of the seacoast then submitted to him, except Zidkaha, compare Zedekiah, or Zidkabal, king of Ascalon. This chief was, however, soon subdued and was sent with his household and wealth to Assyria, name destroyed, the son of Rukipti, a former king being placed on the throne in his stead. The cities dependent upon Ascalon, which had not been obedient to his authority, he captured and plundered. A passage of great importance, which now occurs, is unfortunately so much injured that it has not yet been satisfactorily restored. It appears to state that the chief priests and people of Ekron had dethroned their king Padia, who was dependent upon Assyria, and had delivered him up to Hezekiah, king of Judea. The kings of Egypt sent an army, the main part of which is said to have belonged to the king of Melukka, Mero, or Ethiopia, to Judea, probably to help their Jewish allies. Sennacherib joined battle with the Egyptian, totally defeated them near the city of Al-something-Ku, capturing the charioteers of the king of Melukka and placing them in confinement. This battle between the armies of the Assyrians and Egyptians appears to be hinted at in Isaiah and in the Book of Kings. Padiah, having been brought back from Jerusalem, was replaced by Sennacherib on his throne. Hezekiah, king of Judah, says the Assyrian king, who had not submitted to my authority, 46 of his principal cities and fortresses and villages depending upon them, of which I took no account, I captured and carried away their spoil. I shut up himself within Jerusalem, his capital city, the fortified towns and the rest of his towns, which I spoiled, I severed from his country and gave to the kings of Ascalon, Ekron and Gaza, so as to make his country small. In addition to the former tribute imposed upon their countries, I added a tribute, the nature of which I fixed. The next passage is somewhat defaced, but the substance of it appears to be that he took from Hezekiah the treasure he had collected in Jerusalem, 30 talents of gold and 800 talents of silver, the treasures of his palace, 
besides his sons and his daughters, and his male and female servants or slaves, and brought them all to Nineveh. The city itself, however, he does not pretend to have taken. There can be little doubt that the campaign against the cities of Palestine recorded in the inscriptions of Sennacherib at Kuyunjik is that described in the Old Testament. The events agree with considerable accuracy. We are told in the Book of Kings that the king of Assyria, in the fourteenth year of the reign of Hezekiah, came up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them, as he declared himself to have done in his annals. And what is most important, and perhaps one of the most remarkable coincidences of historic testimony on record, the amount of the treasure in gold taken from Hezekiah, thirty talents, agrees in the two perfectly independent accounts. Too much stress cannot be laid on this singular fact, as it tends to prove the general accuracy of the historical details contained in the Assyrian inscriptions. There is a difference of 500 talents, as it will be observed, in the amount of silver. It is probable that Hezekiah was much pressed by Sennacherib and compelled to give him all the wealth that he could collect as we find him actually taking the silver from the house of the Lord, as well as from his own treasury, and cutting off the gold from the doors and pillars of the temple to satisfy the demands of the Assyrian king. The Bible may therefore only include the actual amount of money in the 300 talents of silver, whilst the Assyrian records comprise all the precious metal taken away. There are some chronological discrepancies which cannot at present be satisfactorily reconciled and which I won't attempt to explain. It is natural to suppose that Sennacherib would not perpetuate the memory of his own overthrow and that having been unsuccessful in an attempt upon Jerusalem, his army being visited by the plague described in scripture, he should gloss over his defeat by describing the tribute he had previously received from Hezekiah as the general result of his campaign. There is no reason to believe from the biblical account that Sennacherib was slain by his sons immediately after his return to Nineveh. On the contrary, the expression, he returned and dwelt at Nineveh, infers that he continued to reign for some time over Assyria, we have, accordingly, his further annals on the monuments he had erected. In his fourth year he went southward and subdued the country of beth Yakin, defeating Susubira, the Chaldean, who dwelt in the city of Bitut on the river, Agami, according to Rawlinson. Further mention is made of Merodach Baladan. This king, whom I had defeated in a former campaign, escaped from my principal servants and fled to an island, whose name is lost, his brothers, the seed of his father's house, whom he left behind him on the coast, with the rest of the men of his country, from Beth Yarkin, near the Salt River, the Shat el Arab, or united waters of the Tigris and Euphrates, I carried away, and several of his towns I threw down and burnt, as Sernadimi, as Sir Nardin, according to Rawlinson, my son, I placed on the throne of his kingdom. 
He appears then to have made a large government, of which Babylon was the chief place. In the fifth year he defeated the Tukari, capturing their principal stronghold, or Nippur, detached hill fort, and others of their castles. He also attacked Maniak, king of Oku, or Wuku, a country to which no previous Assyrian king had penetrated. This chief deserted his capital and fled to a distance. Sennacherib carried off the spoil of his palace and plundered his cities. This expedition seems to have been to the north of Assyria, in Armenia or Asia Minor. In the following year, Sennacherib again marched to the mouths of the Euphrates and Tigris and attacked the two cities of Nagid and Nagid Dibina. Both cities belonged to the king of Elam, Elamti, or Nuvaki, the two names being used indifferently for the same country. The Assyrian king, in order to reach them, was compelled to build ships and to employ the mariners of Tyre, Sidon, and Yavan as navigators. He brought these vessels down the Tigris and crossed on them to the Susianian side of the river, after having first, it would seem, taken the city Nagit, which stood on the western bank. He offered precious sacrifices to a god, maybe Neptune, aimed doubtful, on the bank of the Salt River, and dedicated to him a ship of gold and two other golden objects, the nature of which has not been determined. Mention is then made of his having captured Nagid Dabina, together with three other cities whose names cannot be well ascertained, and of his crossing the river Ula, the Ulai of Daniel, the Ulias of the Greeks, and the modern Karun. Unfortunately, the whole of the passage which contains the record of the expedition against these cities is much defaced and has not yet been satisfactorily restored. It appears to give interesting details of the building of the ships on the Tigris by the men of Tyre and Sidon and of the navigation of that river. Such are the principal historical facts recorded on the bulls placed by Sennacherib in his palace at Nineveh. I have given them fully in order that we may endeavour to identify the sculptured representations of these events on the walls of the chambers and halls of that magnificent building described in the course of this work. As the name of Sennacherib, as well as those of many kings, countries and cities, are not written phonetically, that is, by letters having a certain alphabetic value, but by monograms, and the deciphering of them is a peculiar process, which may sometimes appear suspicious to those not acquainted with the subject, a few words of explanation may be acceptable to my readers. The greater number of Assyrian proper names with which we are acquainted, whether royal or not, appear to have been made up of the name, epithet or title of one of the national deities, and of a second word such as slave of, servant of, beloved of, protected by, like the Theodosius, Theodorus and etc. of the Greeks, and the Abdullah and Abdurrahman of Mohammedan nations. The names of the gods being commonly written with a monogram, 
the first step in deciphering is to know which god this particular sign denotes. Thus, in the name of Sennacherib, we have first the determinative of God, to which no phonetic value is attached, while the second character denotes an Assyrian god, whose name was Sun. The first component part of the name of Esar Haddon is the monogram for the god Assur. It is this fact which renders it so difficult to determine with any degree of confidence most of the Assyrian names, and which leads me to warn my readers that with the exception of such as can with certainty be identified with well-known historic kings as Sargon, Sennacherib and Esarhaddon, the interpretation of all those which are found on the monuments of Nineveh is liable to very considerable doubt. In speaking of them, I shall, therefore, not use any of the readings which have been suggested by different writers. Although no question can reasonably exist as to the identification of the king who built the palace of Kuyanjik with the Sennacherib of Scripture, it may still be desirable to place before my readers all the corroborative evidence connected with the subject. In so doing, however, I shall have to refer to the discoveries made at a subsequent period, and which ought consequently to be described, if the order of the narrative be strictly preserved, in a subsequent part of this work. In the first place, it must be remembered that the Kuyanjik king was undoubtedly the son of the founder of the palace at Khorasabad. He is so called in the inscriptions behind the bulls in the southwest palace at Nimrod, and in numerous detached inscriptions on bricks and on other remains from those ruins and from Kuyangjik. Now the name of the Khorasabad king was generally admitted to be Sargon, even before his relationship to the Kuyangjik king was known. Although here again we are obliged to attach phonetic powers to characters used as monograms, which, when occurring as simple letters, appear to have totally different values. Colonel Rawlinson states that this king bears, in other inscriptions, the name of Shalmaneser, by which he was better known to the Jews. Dr. Hinks denies that the two names belong to the same person. Unfortunately, the upper parts of nearly all the bas-reliefs at Kuyangjik having been destroyed, the epigraphs are wanting, and we are unable as yet to identify with certainty the subject represented with any known event in the reign of Sennacherib. There is, however, one remarkable exception. During the latter part of my residence at Mosul, a chamber was discovered in which the sculptures were in better preservation than any before found at Kuyanjik. Some of the slabs indeed were almost entire, though cracked and otherwise injured by fire, and the epigraph, which fortunately explained the event portrayed, was complete. These bas-reliefs represented the siege and capture by the Assyrians of a city evidently of great extent and importance. It appears to have been defended by double walls, with battlements and towers, and by fortified outworks. The country around it was hilly and wooded, producing the fig and the vine. The whole power of the great kings seems to have been called forth to take this stronghold. 
In no other sculptures were so many armed warriors seen drawn up in array before a besieged city. The besieged defended themselves with great determination. Spearmen, archers and slingers thronged the battlements and towers, showering arrows, javelins, stones and blazing torches upon the assailants. Part of the city had, however, been taken. Beneath its walls were seen Assyrian warriors impaling their prisoners, and from the gateway of an advanced tower or fort issued a procession of captives, reaching to the presence of the king, who, gorgeously arrayed, received them seated on his throne. The vanquished people were distinguished from the conquerors by their dress. Those who defended the battlements wore a pointed helmet, differing from that of the Assyrian warriors in having a fringed lappet falling over the ears. Some of the captives had a kind of turban with one end hanging down to the shoulder, not unlike that worn by the modern Arabs of the hedjars. Others had no headdress and short hair and beards. Their garments consisted either of a robe reaching to the ankles or of a tunic, scarcely falling lower than the thigh and confined at the waist by a girdle. The women wore long shirts with an outer cloak thrown, like the veil of modern eastern ladies, over the back of the head and falling to the feet. Several prisoners were already in the hands of the torturers. Two were stretched naked upon the ground to be flayed alive. Others were being slain by the sword before the throne of the king. The haughty monarch was receiving the chiefs of the conquered nation who crouched and knelt humbly before him. They were brought into the royal presence by the tartan of the Assyrian forces, probably the Rabshaka himself, followed by his principal officers. The general was clothed in embroidered robes and wore on his head a fillet adorned with rosettes and long tasseled bands. The throne of the king stood upon an elevated platform, probably an artificial mound in the hill country. Its arms and sides were supported by three rows of figures, one above the other. The wood was richly carved or encased in embossed metal, and the legs ended in pine-shaped ornaments, probably of bronze. The throne indeed appears to have resembled in every respect one discovered in the northwest palace at Nimrod, which I shall hereafter describe. Over the high back was thrown an embroidered cloth, doubtless of some rare and beautiful material. The royal feet rested upon a high footstool of elegant form, fashioned like the throne and cased with embossed metal. The legs ended in lion's paws. Behind the king were two attendant eunuchs, raising fans above his head and holding the embroidered napkins. The monarch himself was attired in long loose robes, richly ornamented and edged with tassels and fringes. In his right hand he raised two arrows, and his left rested upon a bow. An attitude probably denoting triumph over his enemies, and in which he is usually portrayed when receiving prisoners after a victory. Behind the king was the royal tent or pavilion, and beneath him were his led horses and an attendant on foot carrying the parasol, the emblem of royalty. His two chariots with their charioteers were waiting for him. The trappings of the horses were handsomely decorated, 
and an embroidered cloth hung with tassels fell on their chests. Two quivers holding a bow, a hatchet, and arrows were fixed to the side of the chariot. This fine series of bas-reliefs, occupying thirteen slabs, was finished by the ground plan of a castle, or of a fortified camp containing tents and houses. Within the walls was also seen a fire altar with two beardless priests, wearing high conical caps standing before it. In front of the altar on which burned the sacred flame was a table bearing various sacrificial objects, and beyond it two sacred chariots such as accompanied the Persian kings in their wars. The horses had been taken out and the yokes rested upon stands. Each chariot carried a lofty pole surmounted by a globe and long tassels or streamers. Similar standards were introduced into scenes representing sacrifices in the sculptures of Khorasabad. Above the head of the king was an inscription which may be translated, Sennacherib, the mighty king, king of the country of Assyria, sitting on the throne of judgment, before, or at the entrance of, the city of Lachish, Lachisha, I give permission for its slaughter. Here, therefore, was the actual picture of the taking of Lachish, the city as we know from the Bible, besieged by Sennacherib when he sent his generals to demand tribute of Hezekiah, and which he had captured before their return. Evidence of the most remarkable character to confirm the interpretation of the inscriptions and to identify the king who caused them to be engraved with the Sennacherib of Scripture. This highly interesting series of bas-reliefs contained, moreover, an undoubted representation of a king, a city, and a people with whose names we are acquainted and of an event described in Holy Writ. They furnish us, therefore, with illustrations of the Bible of very great importance. The captives were undoubtedly Jews. Their physiognomy was strikingly indicated in the sculptures. But they had been stripped of their ornaments and their fine raiment, and were left barefooted and half-clothed. From the women, too, had been removed the splendour of the foot ornaments and the caps of network and the crescents, the ear pendants and the bracelets and the thin veils, the headdress and the ornaments of the legs and the girdles, and the perfume boxes and the amulets, the rings and the jewels of the nose, the embroidered robes and the tunics, and the cloaks and the satchels, the transparent garments and the fine linen vests, and the turbans and the mantles, for they wore instead of a girdle, a rope, and instead of a stomacher, a girdling of sackcloth. Other corroborative evidence as to the identity of the king who built the palace of Kuyanjik with Sennacherib is scarcely less remarkable. In a chamber or passage in the southwest corner of this edifice were found a large number of pieces of fine clay bearing the impressions of seals which, there is no doubt, had been affixed like modern official seals of wax to documents written on leather, papyrus or parchment. Such documents, with seals in clay still attached, have been discovered in Egypt, 
and specimens are preserved in the British Museum. The writings themselves had been consumed by the fire which destroyed the building, or had perished from decay. In the stamped clay, however, may still be seen the holes for the string or strips of skin by which the seal was fastened. In some instances, the ashes of the string itself remain, with the marks of the fingers and thumb. The greater part of these seals are Assyrian, but with them are others bearing Egyptian, Phoenician and doubtful symbols and characters. Sometimes the same seal is impressed more than once on the same piece of clay. The Assyrian devices are of various kinds. The most common is that of a king plunging a dagger into the body of a rampant lion. This appears to have been the royal, and indeed the national, seal or signet. It is frequently encircled by a short inscription, which has not yet been deciphered, or by a simple guilloche border. The same group, emblematic of the superior power and wisdom of the king, as well as of his sacred character, is found on Assyrian cylinders, gems and monuments. Other devices found among these impressions of seals are 1. A king attended by a priest, in act of adoration before a deity standing on a lion, and surrounded by seven stars. Above the god's head on one seal is a scorpion. 2. A king, followed by an attendant bearing a parasol, and preceded by a rampant horse. 3. A god, or the king, probably the former, rising from a crescent. There appears to be a fish in front of the figure. 4. The king with a eunuch or priest before him, a flower or ornamented staff between them. 5. A scorpion surrounded by a guilloche border, a device of very frequent occurrence and probably astronomical. 6. A priest worshipping before a god. Behind him are a bull and the sacred astronomical emblems. 8. An ear of corn surrounded by a fancy border. 9. An object resembling a dagger with flowers attached to the handle. Perhaps a sacrificial knife. 10. The head of a bull and a trident, two sacred symbols of frequent occurrence on Assyrian monuments. 11. A crescent in the midst of a many-rayed star. 12. Several rudely cut seals representing priests and various sacred animals, stars, etc. The seals, most remarkable for beauty of design and skilful execution, represent horsemen, one at full speed raising a spear, the other hunting a stag. The impressions show that they were little inferior to Greek intaglios. No Assyrian or Babylonian relics yet discovered equal them in delicacy of workmanship, and the best examples of the art of engraving on gems, an art which appears to have reached great perfection amongst the Assyrians, are unknown to us except through these impressions. There are three seals apparently Phoenician, two of them bearing Phoenician characters for which I cannot suggest any interpretation. A few have doubtful symbols upon them which I will not attempt to explain, perhaps hieroglyphical signs. 
Of the purely Egyptian seals, there are four. One has two cartouches, placed on the symbol of gold and each surmounted by a tall plume. They probably contained the prenome and a name of a king, but not the slightest trace remains of the hieroglyphs. The impression is concave, having been made from a convex surface. The back of some of the Egyptian ovals, the rudest form of the scarabaeus, are of this shape. On the second seal is the figure of the Egyptian god, Harpocrates, seated on a lotus flower with his finger placed upon his mouth, an attitude in which he is represented on an ivory from Nimrod. The hieroglyph before him does not appear to be Egyptian. But the most remarkable and important of the Egyptian seals are two impressions of a royal signet, which, though imperfect, retain the cartouche with the name of the king so as to be perfectly legible. It is one well known to Egyptian scholars as that of the second Sabako, the Ethiopian of the 25th dynasty. On the same piece of clay is impressed an Assyrian seal, with a device representing a priest ministering before the king, probably a royal signet. There can be no doubt whatever as to the identity of the cartouche. Sabaco reigned in Egypt at the end of the 7th century before Christ, the exact time at which Sennacherib came to the throne. He is probably the so mentioned in the second book of Kings, 7, 4, as having received ambassadors from Hoshea, the king of Israel, who by entering into a league with the Egyptians called down the vengeance of Shalmaneser, whose tributary he was, which led to the first great captivity of the people of Samaria. Shalmaneser we know to have been an immediate predecessor of Sennacherib, and Tiraka, the Egyptian king, who was defeated by the Assyrians near Lachish, was the immediate successor of Sabako II. It would seem that a peace having been concluded between the Egyptians and one of the Assyrian monarchs, probably Sennacherib, the royal signets of the two kings thus found together were attached to the treaty, which was deposited amongst the archives of the kingdom while the document itself, written upon parchment or papyrus, has completely perished, this singular proof of the alliance, if not actual meeting, of the two monarchs is still preserved amidst the remains of the state papers of the Assyrian Empire, furnishing one of the most remarkable instances of confirmatory evidence on record. Whether we regard it as verifying the correctness of the interpretation of the cuneiform character, or as an illustration of sculpture history. Little doubt, I trust, can now exist in the minds of my readers as to the identification of the builder of the palace of Kuyunjik with the Sennacherib of scripture. Had the name stood alone, we might reasonably have questioned the correctness of the reading, especially as the signs or monograms with which it is written are admitted to have no phonetic power. But when characters whose alphabetic values have been determined from a perfectly distinct source, such as the Babylonian column of the trilingual inscriptions, furnish us with names in the records attributed to Sennacherib, 
written almost identically as in the Hebrew version of the Bible, such as Hezekiah, Jerusalem, Judah, Sidon, and others, and all occurring in one and the same paragraph, their reading, moreover, confirmed by synchronisms and illustrated by sculptured representations of the events, the identification must be admitted to be complete. The palace of Corsabad, as I have already observed, was built by the father of Sennacherib. The edifice in the southwest corner of Nimrod was raised by the sun, as we learn from the inscription on the back of the bulls discovered in that building. The name of the king is admitted to be Esarhaddon, and there are events, as it will hereafter be seen, mentioned in his records, which further tend to identify him with the Esarhaddon of Scripture, who, after the murder of his father Sennacherib, succeeded to the throne. I may mention in conclusion, as connected with the bulls forming the grand entrance, that in the rubbish at the foot of one of them were found four cylinders and several beads, with a scorpion in lapis lazuli, all apparently once strung together. On one cylinder of translucent green felster, on one cylinder of translucent green felspar, called Amazon stone, which I believe to have been the signet or amulet of Sennacherib himself, is engraved the king, standing in an arched frame as on the rock tablets at Bavian and at the Nar el-Kelb in Syria. The intaglio of this beautiful gem is not deep, but sharp and distinct, and the details are so minute that a magnifying glass is almost required to perceive them. On a smaller cylinder in the same green felspar is a cuneiform inscription which has not yet been deciphered, but which does not appear to contain any royal name. On two cylinders of onyx, also found at Kuyinjik and now in the British Museum, are, however, the names and titles of Sennacherib. End of chapter 6